Well, please remain standing and take your Bibles out and let's turn them together to Mark's Gospel and chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we will read verses 12 through 26 this morning. 12 through 26. And once again, let us give heed to this. This is God himself speaking to us through his inspired word. Mark 14, beginning in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And whenever, wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day, when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. As we get ready to look at this passage, let's take a moment and ask God's help. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your word always. We pray, Lord, that as we open your word this morning, as it is preached in our hearing, we ask, Father, for the aid of your Holy Spirit that he would give unction to the one who speaks and give understanding to those of us who hear. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what your Spirit says to us through this passage this morning, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Of course, keep your Bibles out as we look at this passage this morning. Jesus is now just hours from being arrested, tried, and crucified, giving up, offering up his life as a sacrifice for sin so that through him, you, Christian, and be reconciled with God and be acceptable in his sight and enjoy the life that he gives. Mark has recorded for us, as we saw last time, 
that one of the 12, one of the disciples, has gone to the Jewish authorities and entered into an agreement with them to betray Jesus into their hands for a payoff, for money. And while the Jews are seeking to dishonor Jesus, we also saw last week that a woman focused on showing him great honor. In fact, even more, as we saw last week, even more than she herself intended. Because as Jesus said, her actions were actually an anointing of his body for his upcoming burial. And as we've seen, this is all working itself out in the context of one of the most important days on the Jewish calendar, the Passover. This morning, we come to Jesus' last meal, what we often call the Last Supper, which we will see Jesus will transform into something different, a different kind of supper. And we'll see that this morning as we look at three things. They're listed there in the outline in your bulletin if you like to uh, take notes. But we'll begin by looking at the preparation for the Passover meal. And Mark begins in this passage, uh, just as he did last week, by, by tying this explicitly, tying these events to the celebration of Passover and the connected Feast of Unleavened Bread, an annual celebration, remember, of God's bringing his people out of bondage through the work of Moses, the bondage that they were under in Egypt, and an event that is inextricably, as we mentioned again last week, inextricably tied to the work of Jesus, who, as our Passover lamb, has, through his own sacrifice, through the shedding of his own blood, has redeemed out of bondage a people from every people, from every background, every language, every culture, everyone who will believe in him and accept the free gift of forgiveness which he offers through the gospel. And again, Mark gives us this tie-in here in verse 12, he says that this event takes place on the first day of unleavened bread when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. This ties it to the, the very height of the Passover celebration and to this feast of unleavened bread. Remember, last week we talked about how the two events, the single event, the single day event of Passover, and then the, the seven-day uh, feast of unleavened bread are right together and are often spoken of together. And the Passover lamb would on this day be slaughtered in the morning, in the afternoon, and then the Passover meal was, uh, was to be eaten that night, sometime after sundown. And Jesus and his disciples have, again, because of the crowds coming into the city for this huge uh, feast, this huge celebration, they have again spent the night outside of the city, uh, very possibly at the home of, of either Mary and Martha and Lazarus or perhaps the home of Simon the leper where this feast had been given in honor of Jesus that was held the night before. And as they prepare for this day, this Thursday, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? 
And in response, Jesus sends two of them into town with some very specific instructions. He says in verse 13, go into the city, and that would be Jerusalem. And he says, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now, that part's not too hard. Uh, It it would be an easy person to find, a man carrying a, a jar of water, since men did not do that. That was not their work. That was, dare I say it, Uh, That was woman's work, uh, or the work of a servant, uh, which is the case here. And he says, when you find this man, they are to follow him, and he says, wherever he enters, say to the master of that house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then in verse 15, he says, and he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. The implication here is a a well-furnished, a, a nice room for this, for this event, for something as important in the, the calendar of the year. Uh, this is very uh, important. And this room is going to be furnished. It's going to be ready. And he says, there, prepare for us. And we read in verse 16 that the disciples set out and went to the city and found it, not surprisingly, just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So everything is made ready for Jesus to celebrate this meal with his disciples. It's interesting here, it's very, this is very reminiscent, isn't it, of, of the triumphal entry and the run-up to the triumphal entry where Jesus sends two of his disciples into town where Jesus said, you'll find a donkey tied with its colt and you're to untie it. And if someone says something to you, uh, there's a certain thing to say and everything would be good. Remember that? Way back when we looked at that? I remember it, and it seems like a long time ago. That happened just four days ago in the the scheme of of what we're looking at here. And here, as there, uh, it it could be that either this was a prearranged situation or it could be that Jesus, through his divine knowledge, knew what was going to happen. Of course, he did. But either way, this this is worked out and the preparations are made. Jesus, by his own admission, we should add, has been looking forward to this meal. Luke tells us that in Luke twenty-two fifteen, 15. Jesus said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. A last meal with friends before the events that Jesus knows are coming. And are coming, as I mentioned at the beginning, within the next few hours, this all will begin. And that statement of Jesus, along with Mark's own statement at the end of the passage, down in verse 25, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God, reveals the depth of Jesus' really emotional response to what is soon to come. Something that, of course, we'll see as we continue to see these things unfold. But Jesus says, I've earnestly desired or with great desire I have desired, literally, to, to eat this Passover with you. And we'll see some of the reasons beside just the fact that Jesus desires to have this last chance with these men that he has been with during his ministry. So the disciples go and prepare everything. And, and as we read, everything happens just as, as Jesus said it would. And verse 17 tells us that when it was evening, he came with the twelve, came into this room now. 
with the setting of the sun here on this day, a new day begins in the, the Jewish way of reckoning days and the Passover meal was then to be eaten after sundown. And Jesus and the 12 came to this house now to celebrate the Passover meal. Uh, just a quick reminder for any of you who may be visiting or hearing for the first time and are not uh, sure of what this Passover meal was all about. And by the way, Christians, it is becoming more and more the case that we cannot assume, uh, as we used to be able to do, that even if people are not Christians and even if they have not been raised in the church, you know, we used to be able to, to anticipate that there was some sort of general cultural exposure to the Bible, to the stories in the Bible. But in our highly secularized age, we can't assume that anymore. Basically, the reading that we did earlier from the book of Exodus explains this meal. The Passover was a meal that was instituted by God, given to his people to be a regular, a yearly reminder of that night when God sent that final plague against the Egyptians where the firstborn of every household would die. But God spared his people and he gave to them, as we read, that very visible means by which they would be spared. It's interesting that he tells them to do this and he talks about and we, we recognize and always remember that, that God says that when I see this blood of this lamb that's been sacrificed on the, on the doorpost and on the lentil that, that these the bringer of death will pass over you, that I will pass over you. But if you notice when we were reading, he said that this is a sign to you. So it is done in a very visible way that they might see, that they might remember. And in the Passover meal, it is given so that they would remember uh, what God does, what he did. He commanded each household to slaughter a lamb and to spread that blood. And as God said, when I see that, I'll pass over that house. And the Passover feast was an annual reminder of that event so that they wouldn't forget. Because we forget, we as people forget, even today. I, I like to say, and I can't remember where I read it now, but we need to hear the gospel so often because we tend to forget it so often. We tend to forget it so easily. Every year, for the Jews the, through the Passover and this Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Jewish people would, would look back upon that redemption that God had done, had brought for them. And that background becomes very important for the events that, that this particular celebration of the Passover uh, would, would have, would carry, as Jesus, again, as we'll see, makes this fundamental change to the meal and to its meaning. In fact, there are two important things that happen now as Jesus and his disciples sit down to this Passover meal to remember these things. Two things, um, as they sit or as they recline, they didn't sit for uh, meals like this. Some meals they would sit for, but meals like this they would uh, recline on these cushions on the floor. We talked about that a little last week. Uh, but two important things then happen. And those two points are going to be our second and third point as we look at this passage this morning. One of them is dreadfully tragic and horribly sad. The other is a, is a source of continuing joy, continuing assurance for God's people even today and to the end of the age. 
The first tragic is the announcement of a betrayal. It's our second point. Somewhere in the midst of the meal, as they are eating, as they are talking, as they are discussing what this meal means, as they are, as it was part of the celebration, looking back on what God had done to redeem his people, to bring them out of bondage. As they are celebrating the working of God in that way, Jesus makes a shocking statement, and it's there in verse 18. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now last week, when we looked at at the previous passage here in Mark, we saw the, the treachery that was at work behind the scenes. We saw that the Jewish religious leaders were plotting how they might kill Jesus, arrest him and kill him, and and when would be the right time to do that. Not during the feast because the people uh, may cause an uproar, but when will we do it? How will we do it? By stealth, the scripture said. And we saw that Judas then, one of the 12 apostles, secretly went to the Jews and agreed to betray Jesus into their hands for money. So we know that is happening. We know that's been going on. We've been privy to what's taking place in the back rooms of Jerusalem, in the the alleys and the shady areas where these things uh, were talked about and where they took place. But Jesus' disciples didn't know that. Now, they may have known, if they had thought about it, that Jesus has hinted at something like this because he has said as much that when he predicted his upcoming suffering and death in Jerusalem because he included the fact that he would be delivered over into the hands of men that may have given them the thought that some particular person was going to deliver them deliver him over and he had said to them John 6:70 records for us that Jesus had told them, I chose the 12 of you, but one is a devil. So they, they may have been able to put these pieces together, but not likely. Uh, they probably, they certainly would have never in their worst nightmare guessed that this betrayal would be accomplished by one of their own, by one of their own little group. Twelve men. So imagine their shock when Jesus, sort of out of the blue in this celebration that was pretty scripted, even back then, things have changed from the time that it was instituted to Jesus' time to today. Things have been uh, added and, and formalized, things that we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But in the middle of all of this, Jesus all of a sudden says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. One of you, right here, right now, are going to betray me. And the news of of a betrayal would be bad enough. But it's not a stranger who would betray Jesus. It's not one of those that hated him out there. It would be one of his closest companions who would do this. Something which God prophesied in the Old Testament... Remember Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. 
And remember that these 12 men whom Jesus personally chose and called, they've been with him almost every day for nearly his entire ministry. He has taught them. Uh, He has prayed for them. He has prayed with them. He has poured himself into them. He has uh, enabled them and anointed them and empowered them to to go and to preach and to teach and to cast out demons. Remember, he sent them out. He was preparing them for to take on the, the mantle of being his witnesses to the world after his departure. And it's one of them, Jesus says, who is going to deliver him over to those who want to kill him. You know, we often hear, we often say that it is those who are closest to us who can hurt us the most. And that's certainly the case here. Because it is one of Jesus' closest friends who Jesus says will betray me, one who is eating with me. Even that statement sort of emphasizes the the treachery of the whole thing. The idea of, of sharing a meal with someone was, as many of you know, was much more significant in the first century in the Middle East than it is today. Meals were rituals of social intimacy. To share a meal with someone was a sign of, of, of intimacy, of friendship, of acceptance. And one has written that to betray a friend after eating with him was, and still is, regarded as the worst kind of treachery in a Middle Eastern context. And think about it, the the disciples were likely dumbfounded by this revelation. Mark tells us that they began to be sorrowful. That, That is, they began to be grieved, they began to be troubled in their souls. And they also, the text tells us, that they began to entertain at least a hint of self doubt about their own convictions, about their own devotions to Jesus. As they begin to say, Mark says, one after another, is it I? Now, in the the Greek, the original here, it's structured in a way that expects a negative response. So they're, they're saying, like, it's not me, is it? But still, there's that hint of doubt and we all, we all wonder, don't we? And many have asked, you know, how will I fare in my Christian walk when I am pressed, when I am persecuted, when I am in danger maybe? Will I falter? Will I suffer any shame and any persecution for the sake of Christ or will I deny Christ? when the going gets tough, by word or by deed? Or worse, will I deny that I even know him? People struggle with that. Christians struggle with that. But beloved, trust Christ. He will sustain you. He will preserve you. He will give you the grace that you need to live each day to 
by faith in him. He will not lose those who are entrusted to him. But the disciples here are worried. Is it I? Mark implies it here, but but John says explicitly that even Judas asked that question. He had to, right? To keep quiet, to not say it, would sort of be a somewhat tacit indication that that he was the one. And John's record of, of this supper gives us an indication that Jesus at least somewhat points the finger at Judas, at which point, remember, Judas leaves. And Jesus says to him, what you do, do quickly. But Mark leaves all of that unsaid. Mark's um, description here, very, very brief, very general. And as the disciples ask, is it I? Jesus' reply really is to repeat, well, it's one of you. He says, it's one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. One who is involved in this meal together, the celebration. That didn't really narrow it down any. But then Jesus expands here in verse 21 on this revelation of a betrayer among the twelve. He says in verse 21, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, who would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And in this statement by Jesus, we have, beloved, set before us a situation that is so difficult for us to to hold together in our minds. Um, We have here the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. First, there's the, the divine necessity of these events, and we've talked about that. Jesus says, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. This speaks of the divine necessity of these things taking place. Jesus had said earlier that everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished in this. And every step of these events, as we've been seeing and as we'll continue to see, and the ultimate outcome that takes place, Peter will say all takes place according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. In Acts 1, what's written after all of this concludes, it tells us that even Judas's part in this had to be fulfilled, Luke says. Because the scripture spoke, he says, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. So these events, all of these events, from the circumstances, I said we're coming up to Christmas here, from the circumstances surrounding his birth, birth to a virgin in Bethlehem, to a descendant of David during the reign of a murderous king, to the details of his betrayal here, and his arrest, and his suffering, and his crucifixion, and his glorious resurrection all to obtain eternal redemption for the elect. These are all, in general, in every detail, are part of the glorious and eternal redemptive plan of the sovereign God. Not a reaction. God's not ducking and weaving, trying to react to this and then react to this over here. It's not a case of God 
making lemonade out of lemons, but it's his eternal sovereign plan being worked out. Then he also says this in verse 21, that it would have been better for that man, wait, I'm sorry, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. You see, the sovereignty, the providence of God does not negate the responsibility of man and his actions. Even in Acts 2.23, this speaks of, of everything happening according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Luke says there, records there, that Peter says that Jesus' death was carried out by wicked men. Not men who had no choice in this, who were just uh, victims of circumstance, but wicked men, men with a free will to do what they desired to do, and they desired to kill the Lord of life. Men who hated Christ and sought to kill him and ultimately did. And Judas was there with them. And his guilt was his to bear. You know, Jesus once said, greater love has no man than this, that some, than someone laid down his life for his friends. We should recognize also that greater guilt has no man than this, that a man would betray the innocent, perfect, divine Lord of life into the wicked hands of men. Jesus says, in truth, that it would have been better for Judas if he had not been born, for he will bear his guilt, his culpability in this. The second thing that Jesus does here after announcing this betrayal and the last point, last topic to, for us to look at this morning is the institution of the Lord's Supper. Verse 22 begins to describe a typical Passover meal. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, all normal parts of, of the meal. The unleavened bread of the Passover meal would normally be taken by the host, a blessing would be said over it, then it would be broken and distributed to those around the table. And the blessing was nothing elaborate. The blessing was, was this, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. That's it. The blessing of the wine a little later was very similar. Blessing God who is the one who gives wine. And the original Passover feast was very simple. We read about it. Lamb, unleavened bread, and bitter herbs. Like I said, over time, various uh, elder elements were added. For example, wine. There's no mention of wine in the original uh, celebration of, of the Passover. But wine, several cups of wine at different points had been added by Jesus' day. And we'll... we'll See one here in just a moment. By the way, you ever wonder why the lamb is never mentioned in this meal? Think about that. And you'll, you'll quickly realize why. But of course, this began as a Passover meal, but it ends as something different. Jesus is changing many things right now, isn't he? He is 
announced, pronounced the, the destruction of the temple and along with it the destruction of all that, that went along with the temple, the priesthood and the, the sacrifices and all of that, that's being done away with. And now the Passover is going to pass away. It's about to be gone. It's about to be changed into something else. And I think another reason that Jesus so desired to eat this Passover with them is because of what changes he's making, what he is turning it into, what he's going to establish and institute because of what was to happen next. So the unleavened bread, as with the herbs and the lamb, were were given out, they were accompanied by statements of explanation. And for the bread, the explanation was, this is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. And the statements in reference to the herb, uh, to the Passover lamb, are similarly about that experience, of course, of the Jews in their bondage, and of God's redeeming grace and power as he redeemed his people from that bondage. And so after the blessing and breaking of the bread, it would be distributed to the people. It would be distributed in silence. Nothing said during that part. And it's here, then, first, that Jesus begins to tweak things, to change things, to change the Passover meal substantially, so much so that what will emerge on the other end is not a Passover meal but now something completely different, something that points in an entirely different direction. As he distributes the bread, Jesus says to his disciples at the end of verse 22, take, this is my body. And with that statement, Jesus changes the symbolism of this meal, changes the symbolism of the bread in a way that makes it no longer a Passover meal. Now the bread means something else. Now it points to something different. It points to the body of Christ. It represents Christ and his body. Now, Mark is very brief here, and of course, the, even in Scripture and then beyond Scripture, in the church throughout the centuries, uh, the development and the arguments about aspects of the Lord's Supper uh, are many. But Mark's very brief, even when compared with the other gospel writers. Mark doesn't include, like Luke does, Jesus saying, this is my body, which is given for you. That's not here. That expands on that. It's not here. Nor does Mark include the command that they are to continue this regularly. Do this in remembrance of me. That's not here. He simply records the, the pronouncement of the new symbolism in this supper, in this new supper. Take, this is my body. Now, in this new supper, the bread will represent, will symbolize the body of Christ and, and the breaking of that body through death. And over the next few weeks, we will follow Christ on the trail to his giving up of his body for us. We'll see just what it means that he gave up his body. Mark then in his record here jumps ahead to a place further in the meal where Jesus would at this point take a cup of wine. Since his cup is, Luke 22 tells us, is after they have eaten the meal, 
this would be the third cup of the, the Passover feast, the cup of redemption, which is gloriously appropriate. And Jesus here gives thanks and then gives it to them to drink. And then he says in verse 24, this cup, or this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. As the bread represents and symbolizes now the body of Christ, the wine, he says, now in this new meal represents his blood, which, he says, is poured out for many. Again, the emphasis in in Mark here, the emphasis in the supper is on the symbolic use of these elements. Bread representing the body of Christ. Blood or wine representing the blood of Christ. As Jesus' body was about to be broken, that is his flesh, though, remember, as, as prophecy predicted, not one bone of Christ would be broken as was the case, as we read this morning, with the Passover lambs. Their bones were not to be broken, and so Jesus' bones were not broken, and his blood was to be poured out. The shedding of Christ's blood, as the author of Hebrews says, obtained eternal redemption for those to whom it is applied. And very important here are the words of explanation that Jesus gives in verse 24. He says, this is my blood of the covenant. It's specifically that aspect that Mark emphasizes, that Jesus emphasizes, the blood of Christ, not just, not just blood, but blood that did something specific, blood that ratified, that put into effect the covenant, the new covenant, that sovereign arrangement of grace that's instituted by God in Christ for the redemption of fallen humanity. Jesus says that 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 is what is represented by the cup of wine, which is part now of this new supper. And the new covenant is, well, we can say that the new covenant is the formal contract which is expressed in the gospel. In fact, it's not wrong to say that the new covenant is the gospel. The promises of the gospel are the benefits of the new covenant, which are earned by Christ and given to us by grace and received by faith. So the gospel is pictured now through the bread and the wine in this new supper. And finally, Jesus says in verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He makes clear to his disciples of his his determination to fulfill the will of the Father by offering up his life. And he says that this is the last meal, the last supper that he will share with his disciples before his death. And indeed, that's true. In fact, this is Jesus' last supper his last meal before his death that will take place in just a few hours. But with the promise that his death does not mean the end, he says that I will not share, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He will share a cup with them again and, beloved, with us. 
when he returns to consummate the kingdom, when we will all sit down together to that eternal supper, that wedding feast of the Lamb that Revelation talks about. What is known then as the Last Supper, this Passover meal, becomes the first of a new kind of supper, changed by Jesus into the new covenant version, if you will, of Passover, what we call the Lord's Supper. And as the church celebrates the Lord's Supper still today, we look back now, not to Egypt, not to the Passover, not to a lamb slain and the blood painted on the doorposts, but we look back to the Lamb of God. We look back to his blood being shed, his body being broken, that we could be redeemed, that we beloved Christian brother and sister this morning, that we could be spared the wrath of God. That's what Jesus now points his disciples to. And with this complete, Jesus and his disciples, by now only 11 of them, Judas is left by now, they conclude their last supper their last and first supper, by singing a hymn, verse 26 tells us. That would be Psalm 118, the last of those Hillel psalms that were part of the songs that were sung at the Passover feast. And then we read, they went out to the Mount of Olives, whereas we'll see next time they will spend the last of their time together in an olive garden called Gethsemane. And to that, let us say, amen. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for, we thank you for the supper that he has given to us, the supper that we have, that we are able to celebrate, that we when we partake of it, that we are reminded of what Christ has done. He has offered up his body. He has shed his blood for us. We thank you that you have given to us this, this reminder, this assurance that what Christ did benefited us far beyond even what we can understand. For it is his sacrifice that has brought us eternal redemption. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we go on our way, as we think on these things, Lord, and help us to think on these things. Help us to discuss these things and rejoice in what Christ has done, even at this point in his life and the record of his life where he is about to, to suffer so much from man and from you, O oh God that we may not be made to suffer. We ask this all in his name. Amen.